Mark for another Mark 2.0. I'm going to toss it over to Gordon to introduce our next guest. Well, you'll remember about a week ago, we were talking to a gentleman by the name of Jack Doles, and he introduced, he told us about an amazing individual, and we're thrilled to have him on the podcast today, Mr. Bill Barkley, uh, a man who everyone faces challenges in their life. Uh, and Bill has faced some pretty substantial challenges with sight loss and hearing loss, but he hasn't let that get in the way. He's traveled the world. He's toured across Europe. He's climbed mountains. I give you Bill Barkley. Bill, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I've enjoyed listening to your past podcast too. So um, it's great and it's an honor to be a part of the conversation. So thank you. Oh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you because you know, everyone faces challenges in life, but if you can tell us a bit about your backstory, um, you know, terms like blindness and deafness, there's a spectrum. Uh, how, when did you start going blind? When did you start losing your hearing? And tell us a bit of your life story. Absolutely. That's probably one of the most important um, questions and it's very insightful, which is uh, the spectrum. So, you know, Essentially, uh, my journey was is that I was born um, and had normal hearing, but by the time I reached kindergarten, I was severely to profoundly deaf. And so I uh, was transitioned in one of the first oral deaf programs um, in the country here in the United States um, instead of sign language. So I essentially went through my grade school and uh, latter years experience basically essentially reading lips. Um, I was mainstreamed after, uh, you know, first grade and stuff, um, basically went to private schools and then I had uh, the great fortune to also become a University of Southern California Trojan. Um, so I went to college, graduated from there um, with a degree in business administration. Um, largely with, to be honest with you, um, the 80 day was not part of my world. Um, I essentially got by with whatever I could get. Um, and picking things up, um, no assistance, no uh, tape recorders out type of stuff. It was a very different world. Um, but essentially, I got by with lip reading. But in my 20s, I started to experience some uh, vision challenges. Um, and then as I got to the latter part of my 20s, um, it all kind of came into focus over a series of time, uh, very quickly, essentially, where I had a series of car accidents. 1988 and 1999, where every time I took a left-hand turn, uh, it wasn't good news. And so then uh, that process took another year to figure it all out, you know, traveling all over the U.S., um, only to find out that I uh, was going blind um, and that it was linked to my deafness, which starts as a young child, and that I was on a journey not only into deafness, but into blindness well. So I was feeling like I had um, made significant progress in incorporating deafness into my life, only to find out that deafness and blindness was my real challenge. And then I had to proceed from there. Now, 1988-1989, uh, you're not a woman, and I'm an old school kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 
how old were you in 1988-1989? I'm asking you to give up your age here. Oh yeah, no, I was born in 1962, um, okay. so I was 26, 27 years old. Um, I was okay. on uh, a lot of things happened in that time frame. Um, essentially, um, I got married. Uh, she thought she was marrying a deaf guy that was, you know, uh, yeah. where she was at. But then also we had our first child. And then also at the same time as my diagnosis, we also um, were living in San Francisco and we went through the San Francisco earthquake. So within the span of about a year and a half, my wife had to figure out that her husband was going deaf and blind, that we had to get through the San Francisco earthquake, which was a natural disaster. And then, you know, figure everything else out from there as well. So a lot was happening. That, for those who don't remember, that was the earthquake that happened during the, what they called the, uh, the, 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 the yep, 5.04 p.m. October 17th, 1989. During, during a World Series baseball game between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. Yep. yep. So oh. I had left San Francisco. I decided not to go down by Candlestick Park and decided to go over to the Bay Bridge went over the Bay Bridge and as uh, I went through there, I went into Oakland and they had a cloverleaf, which was called the, um, the Cypress Viaduct. And then I was about a mile south in downtown Oakland when it hit and I was driving. So one section of the Bay Bridge collapsed, the Cypress collapsed, which was then known as the 880 um, in San Francisco. And that's where a couple hundred people died. And I was about a mile south when it hit driving. Man, um, you know, I, I averted, you know, missed wow. everything by minutes. They were just now my time. Now, you know, and you've got a long time to go. Now, the, the question I have is viewers may, listeners may be wondering, okay, this gentleman is deaf. Are you reading my lips right now? Or are, do you have some type of assistance? Is there technology you're using to Correct. enable you to? Yeah. Let's get back to your spectrum question before. So for me, yes. so I have magnification of the screen, which allows me to see your lips, which helps me read um, more clearly. But then also, you know, I have the amplification up, which helps. But then I also have a, a remote, um, I call it, you can call it a remote, but in the hearing world, we call it an FM system, which basically take the output from the computer or TV or whatever, and sends it wirelessly into my hearing aids as well. So then I get a clearer, stronger signal, which then allows me to be able to, you know, at least connect and enhance my chances of, you know, answering the question correctly and getting, you know, the full context of a question. Right. So the, the next level would be, well, what would be the next level of that? And then other that's for people to understand is that I'm on the bubble if I lose more hearing, I would go to a cochlear implant. So I'm maxed out as far as technology can take me. But if I lose more hearing, what essentially what we would do is we would do surgery. We would remove my existing hearing system, put a processor in and wire it to my brain. And then I would go through a rehabilitation process to teach me to hear again. But it would be a synthetic sound, computer sound that's driven by technology to help me be able to restore and experience as much as I possibly can. Okay. So, so far, my greatest gift so far is that I've gotten to age 60 
and I haven't had to go to the cochlear, but I'm not scared of cochlear. I mean, I just know that it just be a different experience, but I, you know, I like to say I, I hear my negative as long as I can. <laughs> oh, you, you, you were gonna say something, Mark, I think? No, I, this okay. is great. Yeah, continue, no, Gordon. Uh, all right, uh, so now, you're you know, a 26, 27-year-old man. You've grown up knowing that your hearing is going. Now you've found out your vision is going. Yeah. That would be, do you think having lost your hearing at such a young age, did that make it easier for you to, because a lot of people, when they have the kind of challenges you've had, depression is common. Yes. And everything I see about you, I don't see a guy who, I, I, everyone, everyone has degrees of depression, but you come across as, bring it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll separate that into two parts because I have to be honest with you. Um, yes. You know, um, I really call the diagnosis in my mid twenties, especially since I had just gotten married, just had a baby. And the earthquake hadn't happened yet, but it was going to be coming. Um, to me, it felt like a double whammy. Um, to me, it was like, I've been fighting for so hard and for so long to get to this place, which would be um, essentially working for a Fortune 500 company. I was in a management position. I had, you know, you know, the word we used to use all the time was mainstream. It was like, you know, the the whole journey because there was no ADA, because there was no, there wasn't much. It was like, it was always fighting for what you could get and do, but I didn't expect much either. And I didn't advocate for much. It was just like, I just had this desire to get there and do it on my own terms. So when I suddenly found out and walked into the room and they just told me out of the blue, that I was going blind, there were no treatments or cures, and, you know, essentially, good luck. Um, I, it, it completely threw me. I had felt like that all the work that I had done in my life to that point had just been thrown out the window. And so then I was like, you know, so then that just created this process for quite some time of just working through um, because then it would, the question that never entered my mind um, before came into play. You know, I have a baby, I have a wife, and that was all within 18 months. Well, how long could I work? Could I economically provide for them? What, what, how fast would I go blind in relation to the deafness challenges that I had? And then since I read lips and I'm going blind, how am I going to communicate to people because they don't know ASL? And there's a form of ASL which you could do in your hands. It's yeah. called tactile ASL, but I don't. I know none of that. So if, if my window to the world disappears and the thing I relied on most was reading lips, what does that mean for me? So you know, the the mind and the brain takes you to some incredibly scary places, but then the mind has yeah. tremendous capacity to take you to great places as well. So that's why I kind of separate the two. It's like the, the shock and diagnosis of having what I call the double whammy really threw me back. Yes. But then I will say that, you know, um, depression, 
has been a part of my entire life. Um, you know, when you're deaf, the biggest challenge is people that are deaf feeling like you're outside, you can't connect, you don't hear whispers, you have people in a group, you know, it's hard to follow a lot of conversation. You know, it wasn't until, you know, we got to the 80s and 90s that there was closed caption on TV. So if I'm watching a baseball game and, you know, the announcer's on there, all I see is the pitcher throwing a ball and I have no idea what, the, what they're saying and what happened. You know, so the ability to connect into these broader experiences have only become better and better through the course of my life. Um, so with Bluetooth and just like we just talked now, you know, I can get a Bluetooth signal, I can hear you, but that stuff didn't exist in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So oh. I always had this sense of, you know, you have to make your own path through the things you can't do. But the power of human connection is very important. And when people don't feel like that they have significant meaning or impact within a specific setting, that's when things like depression kind of kick in. So I guess for me, I had a different level of depression, you know, when I heard that, because it's like, you know, okay, I've done everything I can, or I thought I can, and now I got a whole, it's like, um, it's not one plus one, it was more like a geometric, it's like, oh, this really changes the game. But, you know, I've never really felt that it was a game over kind of conversation, um, even in the worst parts of it. It's always just more of a game changer, you know. Um, but I'd be lying to you if I didn't say it took me a while to kind of come back from that, reel through that, work through, have friends and people to um, help me kind of find a path out of that. But Well, you had mentioned before we started that you have me being in Canada. That's the CN Tower in behind me. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Over my shoulder. Yeah. Um, that you had been a keynote speaker and you've become an advocate for yep. you know, pe people with sight, uh, vision challenges, hearing challenges. How, how much do you find is pushing for new technologies, new government aid? How much is, uh, when you're interacting with people who are going through similar challenges? Well, there's two parts to it. When I talk about my story, um, there's a lot of these things that talk about that we all can connect to, whether we have hearing loss or vision loss or not. It's really about the challenges that you face in your life and then the decisions you make to overcome um, and transcend those challenges. Um, because if you're going to take them on rather than fail, you wanna make the effort and come out of it feeling like you're gonna transcend it. It's not about overcoming, overcoming just one level. You wanna to go to the next level, whether it be anything you do in your life with sports and other things. It's like, if I'm gonna put this work in, I'm gonna take the risks and potentially fail I don't want to just overcome it. You know, I want to transcend it. I want to come out of it becoming more confident, stronger, and learn new skills out of that experience to make me a better person, better player, best, better, you know, a citizen in the world. So to me, that piece is very important. Um, you know, so I do get a lot of requests to talk to specific groups about deafness or blindness or the combination thereof. I like right. to say I'm multifaceted, you know, I can do a few <laughs> different special interest groups, but I really find that it's really about all of us, 
we all have barriers and challenges that we face in our life. And it's what we do with those challenges that really defines us. But Canada, I do want to address specifically, the Deaf Blind Coalition of Canada, which is based out of Toronto, asked me to come up and talk to um, their national conference. Um, what makes Canada so unique in the world is uh, Canada has a college just outside of um, Toronto and Markham that actually trained people to what we call um, to be an SSP, which is essentially uh, a support provider for people who have deaf blindness. And in Canada, so progressive is not only do they have a college degree that allow people to become what we call um, a, 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 an advocate to a deaf blind person, they also fund that person to be assigned to a deaf blind person as a government benefit. Okay. Canada also has communities within outside of the Toronto area where groups of people with deaf blindness all live in the same housing setting so that they can share common experiences and be able to um, build a community and work with amongst themselves. So my, pardon? I was just gonna say that would have to be huge because I imagine you find a way to cope, you find a way to overcome, to yep. transcend something and someone else is finding a challenge and you can share with one another and say, I encountered that type of situation that you've encountered. This is how I overcame it. This is yep. how I was able to go beyond. And I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Uh, well, we all like to think that we all, you know, have our challenges and that we have both of our parents and that we're economically stable and then we have this deaf blindness condition. But the reality is, is that everybody's born into a different human journey. And so what happens is, is that some people's parents no longer are living. They're alone and they're deaf blind. There are people that, um, you know, uh, need to transition from a home setting into an adult setting where they can be around uh, people like and means. And so the, the, the nice thing about it is community is the key to helping people feel a connection. We, we all have universal feelings about what I like to call significant, meaning and impact. Regardless of whether you have a physical challenge in your life or not, we all want to feel like we're significant, that we mean something to someone else in the world. We also want to feel like we have, you know, meaning that what we do and how we, you know, help others and be a part of, you know, common experiences is meaningful. But then we also like to know that we made a difference, you know, and it doesn't mean that you have to change the world or solve world hunger. It's just like, you know, I made an impact on making someone else's life better today and made it easier to get through to the next day. So if we can make those things when people with physical challenges, largely people say, society-wise, it's game over. I don't understand you. I don't know how I can help you. And I'm not sure how I can help you connect to the broader world. So as a result, the messages that get sent are about game over. And my message is, you know, it sucks. We don't want it. But if you embrace it, and if you go to life, you'll find out the chances are that, you know, people will come and meet you. And that it's a, it's a life well worth living. Well, you know what? You, you've spoken to something. I mean, it doesn't matter whether someone has full vision, full hearing, no challenges. 
you've spoken to a universal concept of what everyone wants. Everyone wants to live a life of significance. Everyone wants meaning in their life and everyone wants to impact. You yeah. know, the, 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 that's universal. And in the athletic setting, you know, it's really important. You know, it's interesting as you go through the years of your life, you know, you, you know, I have three boys and they went through sports and stuff. And it's like, they all wanted to be the best. They were competing and played in multiple sports and stuff. And then there comes that day, you know, in high school and stuff, it's like, you may not make it to the pro level. You may not go to the NFL, you know, but, you know, you have the desire and passion to play these things. And what's important is, is that you stay in love with the game because of the game makes you feel better. It makes you feel stronger. It makes you feel like you're contributing. It feels like that you are doing something to live, so to speak. It's not about those other elements, but um, what we kind of get caught up in, regardless of whether you're involved in sports or not, I talk a lot about climbing and rope teams and building community and helping each other get to where you need to go. It's, it's, it's really about embracing, you know, this, this concept of just living and that the goal is to serve, but to help other people get better makes you better. And if you take the focus off of yourself and just participate in life, so many other things come forward and the doors open up that you can't possibly imagine. And so that's why I encourage people. It's like, you know, just get out even if it's for a walk. I mean, for some people, it's amazing to be able to walk down the street a half a block. But after you've been cooped up for six months in a Canadian or Michigan winter, you know what? <laughs> it can completely change yeah. your perspective, you know? Oh, that's one thing you, you, you the state of Michigan, uh, Canada, that's one thing we definitely share in common is our winters. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, why did you decide on Michigan and when did you move to Michigan? Take us on that journey. Well, you know, the whole thing is, you know, like you say, you can't pick your family and you can't pick where you're born, right? Mm. So, so, yeah, basically I was the youngest of five and I was born in uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm. Um, about when at the age of 10 or so, uh, my parents got transferred to Los Angeles. So I did then. Uh, a good part of my grade school years and early high school years in um, California. And then um, they got transferred back to the Midwest again to Michigan. So that was just a couple year deal. And I knew that they wouldn't be there long term. So I was like, well, you know, California, the surfing, USC football, let's try that. So um, I applied and I got into USC. So I decided to go to college. And then after that, um, essentially, I um, graduated from there, and then um, I got my first job and I lived in Seattle and then San Francisco. And then after all that stuff happened, shortly after we got married, you know, my wife was like, you know, I could use a lot of family right about now, um, which I don't blame her. Um, and so as a result, we moved back to Grand Rapids because she was from here as well. So, oh, okay. So that happened to be one of the nice things in the whole thing is how I ended up back here. Although my family remained in California and pretty much has to this day, so. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and USC, you know, is one of the top schools. I've, I've never uh, gone to school there, but I used to work. Uh, I lived in L.A. for 10 years, and I used to do a lot of uh, background acting on TV shows, and we'd film a lot at USC. It's a beautiful campus. Oh, yeah, I loved it. It was a great experience, really. It was a great education. Um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, it, it, um, I had hoped to stay there and then, you know, with everything that happened, you know, life sent you different places, but I pretty much figured I was on the West Coast for the rest of my life, but that's okay. We spent a lot of time out there now. Yeah. Forget, forget about different places. You've been all over the world. You went trekking through Spain over, I don't know how many miles was it? Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I do these adventure projects basically about every 18 months to two years. And I try and find a focus of what I want to highlight and what we can do to kind of get the message out about a lot of different things. But it's really about this no barriers mindset. And um, a friend of mine, Eric Weinmayer, is blind. Um, he's the only person to have ever summited Everest blind. Uh, we started a nonprofit together called No Barriers USA. And we kind of come up with a bunch of principles about, of, you know, taking on barriers or challenges in your life. Um, and so I kind of organized my work and efforts around those elements. So um, quickly, those elements are things like, you know, the importance of having a vision for yourself, um, the importance of building a rope team around you, um, the importance of understanding that you may have to pioneer, that people have never done it before, um, the importance of basically, um, you know, elevation for everything that you receive. It's important to give back to the world and build an ever-elevating community and world around us. Um, you know, it's about alchemy, realizing and accepting your challenges. Um, deaf blindness is my lead, but there's no reason I can't turn it into gold. So these adventure projects highlight different parts of those elements that I'm talking about. Um, so for example, the Camino de Santiago was really about a 500 mile backpacking trip across Spain. I had three friends that guided me um, and basically in front of me, behind me and the side. And we walked for 500 miles, but it was in, in honor of Usher Syndrome Coalition's World Awareness Day, mm. which I got into Santiago after hiking for 30 days and basically blogging along the way and telling people about my journey with deaf blindness and making people more aware about what deaf blindness is and what its causes are and what people can do to help. Um, but, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro was my first one, which would basically to get up there and talk about assistive technologies. I knew that assistive technologies were going to change the way that deaf and blind people would live, work, and play. So I had night vision technology that I used on my eyes that I could see the feet of my guide going up at the summit at night. And then I also had Bluetooth technology, which, you know, 12, 14 years ago, Bluetooth was brand new. And being able to put that into your hearing aids and get up to the top of Kilimanjaro, I could listen to his command, you know, while it was 20 below zero and 30 mile wind, you know, like without any interference, I could hear what he said about where to put my feet and where to go. But I just knew that they were game changers. So, and then from there, I started, um, to start taking kids on expedition to be a mentor because there's really not a lot of mentor programs for kids. So we started with um, going to the Amazon um, rainforest. And then from there, after that, we went and did a Grand Canyon trip at the National Park Service where deaf kids did a sound experiment to measurement sound pollution in um, the Grand Canyon and telling a great story about to the 5 million people that go through the Grand Canyon every year. Uh, what's going on in Earth's greatest environment. But then we also went back again and did Machu Picchu and visited deaf orphanages. 
um, with all deaf teenage kids so that they can understand what it's like to be deaf in a first world country versus a third world country. And they thought that they were penalized and they had challenges when they suddenly interacted, when they had all these technologies and cochlear implants and all the resources of America, they came back becoming advocates for all deaf people around the world. Um, I also started to run the Boston Marathon, which I did twice in the last decade. Um, the first one was really to raise money for the researchers that I go for my disease every single year. Um, so I go there once a year. Um, I'm one of 25,000 people and 100,000 people in the world. There's very few researchers and doctors that understand my condition, what the progression is, much less what the potential treatments or cures could be. So um, the first Boston Marathon was to raise money for the research department and to thank them for all the work that they've done for me. And then, um, you know, Jack Doles has been a tremendous part of this whole journey because uh, Jack backed me in Kilimanjaro and then Boston Marathon stories. And every time I call him with a story, you know, he's, he's always interested to say, what's up next, right? And then, you know, the bombing happened. And so they called me, you know, that's a year after I did. I was in shock, just like everybody else. And then I just decided to go back at it again, you know, for the marathon. I always said I only had one marathon in me and then next thing you know, I'm doing it. But, you know, um, there was a group of 50 of us that got together and then we ended up raising $850,000 for the bombing victims of the Boston Marathon. And everybody thinks about more about, you know, who died and the injuries that were sustained, but they don't realize that there were about two to 300 people that were there at the finish line because of those explosives with the shrapnel caused a lot of eye and vision damage to the people that were in the crowd. And so yeah. that fundraiser was to raise money for those people to receive lifetime care um, for their hearing and vision loss, which is going to be continuing um, long after the bombing has occurred. So, you know, I just find an adventure and then find out what's the best way that we can amplify both the message of no barriers or deaf blindness or any combination thereof. And then I get people on board because um, I can get excited about something and it could be about me, but it's really not about the testosterone inducing aspects of running this race or hiking across. Um, I get to do it. I get to have some great experiences, you know, like having your three sons cross the finish line with you in the Boston Marathon and your 50th birthday is an incredible photo memory to have for the rest of your life. But, it, you know, it was about telling all those researchers to keep going, work harder and, you know, thank you. And so I, I do these things because I, I have to have this purpose of finding to do all the training and do all the work and get all everything going. It has to be for that elevation piece that we've talked about. It's about serving and turning it back to other people because then they get inspired and then they say, hey, I can do that and go for it. Well, so. I, I wanted to ask you, like leaving the physical challenges of, you know, vision and hearing loss aside, climbing Kilimanjaro, Machu Picchu, that's another, you must be in phenomenal physical condition. Well, we try to stay in good shape. I never know what I'll get into. <laughs> I'd be afraid. I'd be afraid to invite you over to my house because I'm afraid the next thing you know, you're going to be signing me up for a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, I also, you know, that's the other thing too. You know, I mean, you know, these things are like, that's why I really, 
yeah, you're right. I mean, you have to set the bar high if you're trying to send a message. So, I mean, yes. to me, it's more about the leadership question than the ego question. You know, that I'm the best and that I'm going to change what it's all about. If, if, if I can just inspire somebody to realize that, you know, the world pretty much tells us everything we can't do. Yes. Whatever we want to get involved in. And our number one worst enemy is ourselves. Yeah. The first person that's going to talk us out of anything is our own internal brain talk. And sometimes we have to really work through that if we really want to go for a goal or a challenge and realize that, you know, you're not going to be understood. I remember when I was going for Kilimanjaro and I'm in Grand Rapids. I mean, I'm in like a zero elevation, you know, <laughs> yeah. 19,400 feet. And so, I, so all of a sudden it comes out that I'm 48 years old. I'm going to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa and I'm deaf blind. I mean, even my friends said, you know, a lot of people were like, nobody will ever tell you that. They're like, well, you know, he's deaf blind. He's been going through a lot. He's having a midlife crisis. I mean, the guy's <laughs> got a midlife crisis, right? That's the first thing everybody's thinking. And then another friend said, you know, did you think that somewhere between zero and 19,400, you might want to shoot something in between? And I said, no. I said, that's the whole point. And the point is we want to make a statement. And, you know, we're going to go for it and see what happens. And so the interesting thing about it was is that I find that, you know, when you're going to go out and do something, even if you do it and fail, especially if people know your story, they're just inspired by the fact that you actually just tried and you right. went out and did it. Because I remember on summit night, I was just like freaking out. I had altitude sickness. I was not going well. I wasn't sure that I was going to make it and stuff. And then it was like, blogging from the mountain with satellite dispatches, Wood TV8, our local TV, was doing all this stuff. People were following me by the minute. And it's like I realized, you know, I kind of got lost in the experience for the wrong part. It was like everybody was just glad I was doing it. I was there. And I was putting this pressure on my myself that I had to get to the top, otherwise I was a failure. And in reality, those that just simply raised the bar and encouraged people to go a little higher, are the ones that we all like to follow. Because it's not about summiting and telling the world that you did it and you can't. It's about telling people that, you know, we can all get stronger. We can all have a stronger community. We all can do things that, that we are told that we can't do. But you just have to create a mindset around it. And a lot mm -hmm. of that is that vision. And that vision piece, I say, the tagline to it is just think of doing something that's bigger than yourself. Something that you know is going to take work. And then the next thing is tell somebody. If you tell somebody that you have a goal or vision, whether it be a 5K or to play football or to do whatever they might want to do, the minute you articulate it, you have now held yourself accountable. Someone else knows. But most of the time we set goals for ourselves and keep to ourselves. And we keep working towards it and we say, well, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'm going to build my weight up. I'm going to go out for this and do that. But if nobody knows that and you don't do it, then no one ever knows you failed at what you were thinking of doing. You need to dream and then you need to tell somebody, help me get there. And that's why accountability partners and workout partners and other people are important in your life. And that's why you're a keynote speaker, not just for people with 
challenges, but at the corporate level and in all the facets of life, school doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I have a weird thinking process, right? So the world likes to categorize things because it makes it easier for the brain. So, you know, I'm white, I'm black, I'm Hispanic, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm from this part of the world, I'm from that part of the world, this culture versus that culture. The brain just does all these things and all these things start to come up. But, it, but at the end of the day, that's a disservice to all of us. You know, what we have to do is we have to really figure out what is it that we can, if we're going out into the world, what are our talents and what are our gifts? And then what are the things that we, we want to build on that we can share with the world and participate in the world? And then, then don't listen to anybody around you. That's the problem. The messages all come to you, but they're not all based on anything necessarily uh, in truth or validity or anything else. Um, it's really more about, you know, using your mind to say, you know, anything possible. You know, visualization techniques that we've been in sports for a long time. You know, imagine yourself doing this in this play, doing this thing, repeat it in your mind. Same thing with thoughts, the same thing with behaviors, the same thing with workout. The, the more you do them, you're in, enhancing your, your odds of success, and then you're building new skills, and you're building a platform with the springboard on. And as a result of it, it's like you feel better. Your mind's more engaged. Oh, you're in the game. Like, and it's called the game of life. Yep. You're building muscle. <laughs> you're, you're, you're building muscle. Now, if I if there if someone out there wants to book you, wants to get you, you know, as a keynote speaker to to inspire, you've mentioned that there is this no barriers USA. Yep. So is, is that, that sure? Well, the easiest way to get made, No Fairs USA is just a passion of mine with Eric and I, which we've gone out and we support the disability community of people from all walks of life to come together and to realize that there's an alchemy in all of us taking on barriers and challenges, and we're going to help you figure it out. So we have a huge wheelchair community. We have a huge community of people of like car accidents or strokes, or people with congenital things like cerebral palsy. We come into a ski town every every year. We basically get a thousand, two thousand people, and we take we take people, you know, in wheelchairs, and we teach them how to rock climb. You know, we take people that are cerebral palsy and teach them how we can go hiking and do all these other things. So we usually have about thirty or forty different adventure clinics, and we're basically exposing them and their family to things that they can do and to get out there. Um, that's more of an experiential thing of understanding about how a transformative experience can change not only the life of the person with a challenge, but even their family around them and give them the passion to go home and to continue this journey beyond themselves. You know, to be in a wheelchair and to be able to kayak, it's awesome, but you can do that at home too. But they need a safe, good environment of people cheerleading them on and providing those resources. For me, as far as uh, public speaking and stuff goes, my website is billbarkley.com. So it's B-I-L-L-B-A-R-K-E-L-E-Y.com. So I have two E's in my name, which makes it hard for people to find me sometimes. But that's where people can do speaking requests and um, find me and find out about the work that I do um, and the speaking that I've done all over the world. 
Oh, awesome. Because I can, I, you know, I can see why you made such an impression on Jack. He's been wonderful. You know, I, I'll tell you, you know, like you guys doing a podcast. Um, you know, when you're a community of one, like, the, you know, a person that's trying to do stuff, right? And, you know, build this thing that I started with Kilimanjaro to now, you know, years later, um, it's a long process. You don't, you know, you're going to have some successes and failures in terms of trying to get the word out and how to do it, you know. But yeah. the, the power of the media and someone in a media context that understands people's life stories and um, understanding what they're trying to do and, and to be able to share that is incredible, you know. So um, Jack and I, when we first met and I told him that I was going to climb Kilimanjaro and he did the first interview, um, you know, we just clicked. And then he's always been a tremendous um, supporter of the work that I've done. And I can't thank him enough because it's, you know, the number of people he can reach and the, the stories that he shares and stuff like that, it just helped that bigger mission and stuff. I mean, it's always, it's, 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 and he's always been um, nothing but um, fantastic in that regard. I mean, so I, I consider him one of the greatest gifts I've ever had, which is um, someone who, um, had done it. And, you know, I've always thought too, you know, I've always liked his work. You know, when he did my Kilimanjaro story, um, he won't talk about it, but he was nominated for the Edward Murrow Award, which is an excellence in journalism award um, for the story that he did for me. Um, and that's the way he wrote his, all those Olympic stories that he does and everything. He's always had a passion around the Olympics and stuff. So it's been fun to watch his career because he's much more than just West Michigan. He's national and yeah. he, he, he's gotten in the lives of all these athletes and under, seen where they've come from, both from an Olympian and a Paralympian perspective. And so to have him still um, be Kali and recommend me and stuff like that, um, it's just a great honor. I mean, he's just an exceptional person and he has a very easy gift. If anyone's wondering, because not everyone is from uh, Grand Rip Grand Rapids who yeah. may be listening or watching, uh, Jack, we're talking about Jack Doles, who's the sports director for Wood TV, which is the NBC affiliate in uh, Grand Rapids. But how how did you first connect with Jack? What was your how did you guys first meet up? Well, I sent him an email and I said, Jack, I'm deaf blind and I'm going to come kill Joe. So I thought I'd reach out to you and I'm trying to get some um, uh, help with getting my story out. And he responded back. And then he took it from there. And so he did a series of stories, uh, probably about three or four stories by training beforehand and then just before I left. And then um, at the time I had proposed, it was kind of groundbreaking at the time, you know, it was, um, I had got a sponsor and we did satellite dispatches from the mountain in Africa. And so every day I would write a dispatch as I was on the side of the mountain. And then this was when the internet were just starting to get the connections to stories on the internet and, um, and the live part. And then we ran a blog and stuff. So then people could follow stuff going along. And then as I uh, summited and came back from it, um, Jack then um, did a story of me arriving back and what we learned out of the whole thing. And, you know, I, a lot of that I have to believe that given the level of excellence that he provided and the storytelling was the reason that I got on Good Morning America the, the minute after I got back. Now, that must have been an experience. 
Yeah. Yeah. You don't get you don't get much bigger. Who 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 are you talking to on Good Morning America? Uh, Chris Cuomo. Wow. Wow. So you, yeah, I mean, I, I got home the Monday after I got back from Africa, and I got a phone call and said, "We'd like to. Can you make it to New York and um, in a couple of days with your guide? We'd like to have you do an interview." I mean, I was totally unprepared for it. I mean, I, I, you know, but my message was about getting deafblindness, assistive technologies, and how things were changing for people around the world. So I accomplished my objective. I just didn't know I exceeded it. And that's one of the greatest things about any of the things we talk about today, which is you set a goal and you set a destination, right? And you think you know what the expected result will be. But the amazing thing is, yeah, that expected result may happen, but there's so many other doors that open because you did it and you decided mm -hmm. to go for it, that that's the beauty and the coolness of things that you do. I mean, that's how I become, became a public speaker because they got on Good Morning America and then people started calling me left and right and said, we want you to come and speak. I wasn't a public speaker before that. I was a salesman for a Fortune 500 company. I was a, direct, a director of sales and marketing for US, Canada, and Mexico. I was firmly entrenched in my life with three sons and teenage sons and doing my thing. And the next thing you know, people think I have something to say. Well, that's- So it, it took some time to figure that out, but I became a speaker. Yeah, so. well, you know what? Sales and marketing is about messaging. Exactly. And, and yeah. you understand, you know, having come from that background, you're probably the it best. Me a lot. Yes. You know, you, you knew what to do. And I don't know, Mark, do you have anything you want to add? This has been incredible. Yeah, this is unreal. Definitely. We really are, we're honored to have you on, Bill. You're oh, really honored. You are inspiring. And I just want to remind everyone now, again, that if you want to connect with Bill Barkley, the best spot is on his website. But don't think Barkley, think of Barkelly, the way the name is spelt. Yep. Because there it. are two E's. B-A-R-K-E-L-E-Y. So Bill Barkley or BillBarkley.com. You can also check him out at No Barriers USA. And it has been an honor, sir, to, to have you on. And I'll invite our users if you want to backtrack. And uh, the, we got to know this gentleman. We were introduced to him by... Jack Doles. So if you want to go back and check out that podcast, if you like what we're saying, if you like the guests we're having on, put a like on there. You're most welcome to share this out with your friends. Anyone who wants to be inspired by someone like Bill's story, share this out with them. Subscribe because we have more great guests coming on. We have one coming on tomorrow, an actor who's doing faith-based films now. So Bill, again, thank you. This was awesome. Yes. Thank you. And I wish you guys well with your podcast. Oh, yeah. Stay well. So thank you for 